Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Few names have for so long been associated with conservation and environmental protection than Gary Taylor. A former Waitakere City Councillor, he was a fierce champion for the Waitakere Rangers and he's held numerous directorships across Auckland in quite high-profile entities. Currently, he's the head of the Environmental Defence Society, which is uh, even more venerable than he is. Uh, It was founded by law and science students in 1971 and has had a long and successful history of litigating on environmentally significant causes. They have fought power stations, mines, fishing fleets and changes to things like the Resource Management Act. I think that's ongoing, that discussion, isn't it, Gary? Uh, We'll come to that. They've been a thorn in the side of polluters and a critic of governments of all persuasions, but EDS still sees itself as a constructive partner and has relationships with business, government and other groups across civil society. So we're going to explore that. But Gary Taylor, welcome to This Climate Business. Thank you, Vincent. So Gary, I first came across you and possibly you came across me. Um, I'm sure you won't remember, but I was a reporter at Metro magazine. And in those days in the 80s, fighting for the Waitakere's and stopping development was was big news. And you were busy telling people to stop urban sprawl, I seem to remember. Has, has that worked? And you, uh, I think that you were just telling me something about uh, being involved in looking at a history of the Waitakere's. Yes, the uh, Waitakere Rangers Protection Society has just uh, engaged a writer to prepare a history, mm-hmm. um, particularly of the Protection Society, but looking at its, um, its predecessors right back into the 19th century when people were starting to advocate for the creation of some public land. I didn't know it went west. back as far as that. It goes way back. I was quite – well, I, I kind of knew it, but um, it was very interesting to see a pro- progression over more than 100 years of effort, you know, and the baton passed from generation to generation and the arguments sort of shifting from, you know, let's create some protected land – uh, to having created it, let's protect uh, the area around it, the private land, from subdivision and degradation. And now we've got a kind of a third phase where we've got special purpose legislation in place, the Waitakere Rangers Heritage Act, which uh, we've done a piece of work on uh, at EDS very recently, yet to be published, uh, asking whether that's working, and it seems to be. So I think the future's looking very positive for the Waitakere Rangers, apart from, of course, the, the terrible problem of Kari dieback. Mm. Mm. Would you say that the efforts to protect the Waitakere's are an example of how change can be managed? I mean, we've built this large city, yet preserved uh, on our doorstep uh, an incredible piece of um, biodiversity. Yes, uh, and, you know, the pressures, as you intimated then, are increasing because of the, the you know, the growth of Auckland. But there still seems to be a, a very solid sort of platform of um, community support for protecting the rangers. Mm. And that's that support, I think, as I said just then, is, 
you know, has been building over the last more than 100 years. Yeah, it's incredible. Which uh, is fascinating. It, it would be lovely to think that on the other side of Auckland, on the Hauriki Gulf, that we have a similar level of protection. But, but that has, by all accounts, degraded to the point where even something as simple as crayfish are now functionally extinct. Well, the sea change process was created to try to change that, and, and we were involved at EDS in the genesis of that, a collaborative process involving all of the stakeholders, including fishers, uh, in looking at how we could develop a, a spatial plan for the Gulf, which is the most heavily used part of our marine environment, mm. uh, and, and allocate space for protection and for use. Uh, and what that's basically uh, where that's got to is that the, they produced a document, the minister created an advisory uh, group that has completed its work and recommendations are sitting there waiting to be enacted. And I think what, what we are going to see is we're going to see more protection roll out for the, for the Gulf. Mm -hmm. we, we, I think we'll probably see a ban on bottom trawling um, and dredging and a move to the you know less damaging long-lining methods of fishing, which mm. organisations like Lee Fisheries have pioneered. Um, and I think we we become very aware, of course, that the key pollutant in the Gulf is sediment. And so you know the, the whole idea of controlling stormwater runoff and uh, subdivision management and new development, uh, and and also looking at the Hauraki Plains you know, the farming runoff from there uh, and trying to reduce sediment, that's going to be the next big challenge. And the, the, the government has just um, completed some freshwater reforms that are going to help with that, I think. Yeah. When you think about the amount of degradation that's happened despite the efforts of the likes of EDS and the Resource Management Act and, and so many so much effort has been put into attempting to raise awareness and engagement with our natural um, environment, and yet um, we continue to see degradation in, in so many areas. I mean, what what is the state of New Zealand's uh, ecology at the moment? Well, it's still going downhill against uh, the majority of indicators. Uh, you know, a lot of our um, indigenous biodiversity is, is threatened or endangered, um, a very high proportion of uh, seabirds are. Um, a very high proportion of um, marine, of, of uh, freshwater invertebrates are, um, and birds. Um, and, and that's a function of habitat loss, of um, pollution from uh, agriculture, from urban um, runoff and the like. Um, so I think we've got a long way to go. On, on, on the upside, you know, we well, we need to we need to kind of regulate the environment. I think more with more precision, and 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 try to target the things that matter, like sediment, the key pollutant in New Zealand, along with nitrogen and phosphorus run out runoff. Um, but the other thing that's happening uh, that's kind of an upside is, um, and it goes back to the Waitakere Ranges example. Really, there's this upwelling of community engagement mm. in positive conservation rehabilitation efforts. There's a lot of philanthropic money going into that from the likes of Tyndall and Foundation North um, and um, uh, a, a lot of really good examples. We've just been looking at Banks Peninsula 
where you know there's a lot of restoration effort going in that's involving landowners in a collaborative way. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of the, the the flip side of the regulatory approach. Mm. Where you actually get communities doing stuff, and um, you know we've got You're sounding hopeful even. Well, I am hopeful. I, I, I think in a way we've kind of, you know, over my lifetime, uh, you know, relatively short historically in historic terms, I suppose, we've I, I've I detected that we moved from uh, out of the the tail end of our pioneering rip shit and bust phase into a phase where we're looking more at restoration Mm. of the natural environment. Mm. I think there's a higher appreciation of the intrinsic values of nature, Mm. you know, whether they're white bait in in freshwater systems or whether they're uh, fish stocks, you know, or or whether they're, you know, the more emblematic sort of birds Mm. that uh, that we're all familiar with in Kiwi. In the Herald last year, you talked about, you praised the efforts of uh, various organisations to address, and it might be um, restoration of native forests or protection of waterways. Um, but you, you said as much as you wanted to praise those efforts, you really fingered the RMA as a, a single, I suppose, a, a, the biggest lever that you could pull What's wrong with the RMA? Why do you think it needs to change? Yeah. Well, that was a bit of work that uh, Dr. Marie Brown did for us um, uh, a few years ago now uh, called Vanishing Nature, where she looked at um, the state of the environment in a, in a holistic sort of way and those negative trends. Um, she did another piece of work that asked the more precise question, is the uh, RMA working for the environment? Mm. And the answer, somewhat surprisingly, was no. And, and we'd all, always defended the environment against, or the RMA against reform, or you know, because mm-hmm. we thought, well, it might, you know, it, it might be working, and we might get something that's worse. But that led us to to build a bit of an alliance, really, with some business groups uh, who had their own frustrations with the act, and we mm-hmm. said, look. Is there some common ground here where we can actually merge our interests and advocate for reform that meets both our needs? And that kind of centred around the the notion of environmental bottom lines or environmental limits. So much of the objection from business and from development has been the frustration at the length of the process and a a sense of... um, having to be accountable for your uh, the consequences of your development. And uh, and so it's been always, or typically it's been cast as a, um, that the RMA resists, protects the environment against uh, rapacious developers. But what you're saying is that it, that, that narrative has not borne out. No, no, the facts uh, uh, are that the... the RMA is is certainly become very arcane and convoluted in its procedures and processes and very legalistic and time-consuming, mm. uh, but it's also just not delivering for the environment. All the indicators are still heading south. Mm. N- not all of them, but, you know, too many of them to, to, to ignore are still heading south. So on the table now is this Randerson report that has been, I think, largely accepted by um, by the government, or at least David Parker was indicating that he, he is taking that into consideration. And, it was th- and that's what we're expecting right up now that the election is gone. Can you explain to us what was the 
What was the outcome? What was the recommendations in that report and maybe even your contribution to them? Well, we, we spent three years uh, doing uh, some major telephone book size studies uh, looking at uh, how you could change it and, and that inputted into the Randerson process and one of our people, Raywin Peart, was on that small panel uh, and uh, uh, made her contribution to it. Mm. Uh, I think the key changes are that uh, we're going to move away from the idea of managing environmental effects, yes. which is embodied in the RMA, mm. to having an outcomes focus. Um, What's the difference? Well, the difference the difference is that the outcomes, as I see it, are, it's, it's more strategic. And so we've got a Strategic Planning Act that's going to sit alongside the Natural and Built Environments Act. Mm -hmm. We're going to actually look at a 30-year time horizon. What is it we want in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the environment? What do we want to go where, uh, including parts of the marine environment? And then the Natural and Built Environments Act will kind of simplify and um, streamline the the arcane processes of the RMA into something that's more modern and user-friendly. Um, it will uh, short-circuit some of the prolonged uh, legal processes involved in making mm. plans. Mm -hmm. uh, it will shift the emphasis towards saying what it is that we want, what the outcomes are that we want in plans, rather than um, uh, leaving it up to resource consent. So there'll be fewer resource consents, more things will be permitted, uh, but they'll be through you know, a rigorous test against those environmental bottom lines I mentioned. Can you give us an example of, uh, at a micro level, what might that mean between the old RMA and this new regime? Well, it'll mean that instead of 100 or more plans being devised uh, through the RMA Schedule 1 process, which involves a uh, the council um, having some consultation or collaboration with the community, uh, notifying the plan, inviting submissions, summarising them, advertising them, inviting cross-submissions, having a hearing, and then allowing appeals on all of that again, de mm -hmm. novo, in the Environment Court, challenges potentially in the High Court, the Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court. It'll replace that with 14 plans, that will go through a fast-track process, much like the Auckland Council one used for its unitary plan, a one-stop hearing with limited rights of appeal, an independent panel, um, and um, you know, uh, uh, more, more focused on strategic outcomes than, than the minutiae of process. It sounds less democratic. I, you know, I thought one of the motivations of the RMA originally was to empower communities to have a say about what effects are going to happen when a factory is built or a motorway is built or you know, any, any kind of change to the environment. And this idea of, I suppose, trying to capture those um, externalities you know, what, yeah. um, that were, are really hard to define and was sort of opened to the community to say, well, how might this change affect you and you're entitled to have a say? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's complicated. I mean, on the one hand, you know, the whole notion of subsidiarity is theoretically good uh, on, 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 uh, and, and democratic involvement in those local processes is theoretically good. 
the, the practice, of course, has been that local concerns tend to get swamped by the, the big end of town and the money. And, and so it's often a David-Goliath sort of battle where, where um, David actually doesn't win. <laughs> and, and, and so, uh, you know, I think, I think we're, we're better off with a, a legal framework that's more precise, that's sharper, that reduces the ability of um, sort of, you know, wise men, and, and they generally were back in the day, making these overall broad judgments um, around um, environment versus e- economy mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and defining what those environmental limits are. And if you're going to do something, you've got to show that you can do it within those limits. Otherwise, you know, ta-ta. Mm. Uh, I had a friend who was a lawyer, an environment lawyer, who spent most of his time working for one oil company who would be fighting another oil company using the RMA to effectively be a, a sort of frivolous complainer. Do you think that kind of frivolous complaining is something that will be addressed with the change? I think that has already been addressed. There's been amendments to the RMA that I think Nick Smith put through that a, a few years ago now that effectively put paid to that. Um, yep. Yeah, okay. The supermarket wars is the other Example, that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, and you sort of had this faux community effort where it was actually funded by uh, Progressive on one hand and foodstuffs on the other to uh, effectively just lock out the competition. You got yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you've got a big conference coming up. You do this, uh, I think, how many years have you been doing this climate and business conference? I think this is the 13th event. That's fantastic. What's the, uh, tell us about the conference. You know, what's the motivation and, and what do you hope to achieve? Well, we've been, we, we thought that it would be a good uh, sort of niche for us in this huge climate change sort of uh, panoply to, to focus on getting uh, business and policymakers together in, in, in a safe place to, uh, to discuss the risks and opportunities facing business in particular uh, from climate change. And so over the years since our first event, you know, things have happened. Mm. There's been this trajectory of, of, of rising awareness, of uh, rising commitment from business to actually engage. Uh, there have been businesses, new businesses that have set up that are, that are you know, uh, looking very much at the opportunities end of this. Um, and so this event is, um, you know, it's sort of post the first phase, at least, of COVID. It's, um, uh, we've got a new government, you know, climate change is apparently going to be a, a core part of uh, its policy direction. So this event is uh, on the 11th and 12th of November in Auckland. We had to postpone it once yes, because of COVID. Fingers crossed it won't happen again. Uh, and um, so it's a very timely opportunity to get together and just chart what you know what is going to happen over mm. the next three years. How are we tracking against our 2030 target? Mm. Are we going to get there? The answer's probably not. Going to overshoot. What about 2050? How do we decarbonise the economy? All of those things that you spend a lot of time talking to people about. Yeah. You, as, as an organisation, you've always seen yourself as uh, kind of in the tent. I, you know, I, I thought I'd be right in describing you as working inside the system, trying yeah. to change. 
Has, is that the right approach? You know, we talked about the state of the environment now and, um, you know, how, just how disappointing it is after so much effort to, to be in this state. Are you, when you reflect on, hmm. uh, on the level of change <clears throat> that's required, is working inside the tent with business, with government and this sort of collaborative approach, is that going to be the most effective way to get the change we need? Good question. I mean, it's it's within the tent, uh, but it doesn't mean that we're patsies. I mean, you know, we, we sue people. We, we, we're taking Rio Tinto to court at the moment. So, you know, we're, we're not at any kind of soft touch. Uh, but but I, think, I think it's right for us, that approach. This is the Environmental Defence Society. We're having our 50th birthday next year, yes, for goodness sake. Yep. Time flies when you're having fun. Uh, and um, it was always about the law and the science and the policy. Um, we work very collaboratively with, collaboratively with colleagues like Greenpeace. You know, I, we talk to people from Extinction Rebellion, um, from Forest and Bird, from WWF. So there's this, you know, there's there's many different ways of of, of approaching the the advocacy that's required mm-hmm. uh, for our environment and and uh, you know I think sort of common aims, differentiated uh, methods mm-hmm. is is the way that the environmental movement works. Yeah, and I think we're all very comfortable with that. No <clears throat> one's trying to tell. I, I I would never tell Greenpeace, hey, you know, don't climb that chimney, guys. It's not how we do it. Mm. I mean, that's what they do, and it's it's part of the mix, and it does affect change, and there's a role for everybody in all those approaches. Well, let's talk about something that is definitely uh, establishment now but needs changing is the uh, emissions trading scheme. So um, at the moment, uh, you know, there were many faults with it. At, at least one of them is that agriculture is still given a free ride outside of that um, scheme. Do you have a point of view about what needs to change, particularly with regard to agriculture? My view on that has shifted in in the last little while. I've always thought that it was a pretty straightforward matter of bringing them in and whacking on a charge. Um, I think now um, we actually need to have a, a, a careful conversation about how best to deal with agriculture. Um, I mean, it's methane and nitrous oxide, a little bit of CO2. Um, so it's different to the transport fleet. Um, it's not as long lived a gas. Um, it, um, and, and we do need food. Um, however, I mean, I, I suppose I'd say I, I, I think that Heiwaka Ekinoa, which is the primary sector's uh, offer to the government. That's the deal they did where they're going to look at how they could measure emissions by 2025 mm. at the farm gate. Mm. And they're going to have, they've got a, a threshold to get to in 2022, mm. which interestingly is within the term of this government. Yes. Otherwise, you know, they could get uh, brought in then if they're not making sufficient progress. I think that's weak. Hey, Walker. Um, it tends, in the material that I've seen, it tends to say that the only um, mitigation efforts that we'll pursue will be ones where new technology comes on board. Nothing about land use change. I mean, I think, I think in many respects, agriculture and the ETS and climate change uh, is uh, a, um, 
the, the, the necessity is some fundamental land use change to reduce emissions from how we produce our food, what Can, we produce. What do you and mean? Well, give us an example. Well, of well you know, away from intensive dairying, for instance, uh, into, into um, uh, horticulture, uh, particularly perhaps tree crops, um, and, uh, you know, more, le- less intensive dairying, you know, reducing the, the, the inputs of, of fertiliser, reducing the number of cattle, of, of dairy cows, um, and, and, um, and, and still maintaining some profitability, but because you've scaled everything down, the profit's still there. So, you know, that kind of conversation I think we need to have mm. and stop beating each other up which has been the, the debate to date, you know, recalcitrant farmers, federated farmers. I mean, crikey, it's, um, there's not a lot of nuanced um, advocacy comes out of federated farmers on the topic, which mm. I think they need to rethink their positioning on. Mm. But um, so, I mean, that's, as I said, it's complicated. I but but, but I, think, I think in the end, you know, e- the ETS is, is uh, an imperfect but useful tool, uh, we need to uh, get many of our trading partners uh, with an ETS as well. Mm. I think some more external advocacy from our Prime Minister might help mm. that. Um, but um, uh, certainly there needs to be a price on farm emissions. Mm. It's a question of you know, what's the price and at what rate. I had a, um, a quite a large <coughs> farmer. He wasn't a large farmer. He a farmer that owned many farms. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Forbes Elworthy uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about, and mm. I challenged him about. Um, he he has farms in, um, in in Canterbury that are highly irrigated uh, and intensive dairy farms, and was very resistant to the suggestion that that was a poor use of land. And uh, at, in that same week, there was uh, tractors driving down um, yeah, in Chicago. Yeah. Um, the town and country divide seems to be bigger than ever. Well, it has been. I think it has been over the last five years, in particular. Uh, you know, a consequence of the dirty dairying campaign, uh, which was, uh, you know, I think what happened there was that urban uh, liberals became aware of what the state of our waterways Well, that's what Forbes were. accused me of being, a, yeah, a, well, a, a comfortable urban liberal, I think. Well, you, you are, probably. I probably but, am. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's... Uh, Drinking my oat milk. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, uh, the Elworthies have been farming for generations. I knew Peter back in the day. Mm. Uh, and... Um, I, I guess if you've been in doing the same thing for generations, it's hard to contemplate change. And that's one of the reasons why I think we need to have a, a nuanced and careful conversation uh, because, you, you know, you can't, you can't continue to have the town beating the country up. You know, in the end, we are on one canoe and, and we need to kind of, you know, mm. get with the program mm. um, and... and, and Work out exactly what what should happen. How are we going to get to net zero by 2050? How can we minimise the overshoot at 2030? How do we how do we uh, feed our people? You know, and the world. 
and make a buck. In part of the world. Yeah, yeah it's not easy. Um, and speaking of not easy, so this falls a lot on the government's uh, agenda and we now know we have a majority Labour government. What, how do you think that's going to play out? What do you, what do you think will be the main changes uh, that they will make in regards to you know, climate change but also biodiversity? Well, I think we'll definitely see the, um, the Resource Management Act uh, repealed and replaced by mm-hmm. something like the Randerson suggestion. So three acts, the, uh, including the Adaptation to Climate Change one, whatever that's called, I forget the name of it. Uh, and we'll see, uh, we'll see a, a national policy statement on, on Indigenous biodiversity that's sitting there that'll get enacted. We'll see the DOC's uh, big biodiversity strategy approved. Uh, the freshwater reforms are kind of almost done and dusted. There's a little bit of further work on dissolved inorganic nitrogen and dissolved reactive phosphorus to land. Um, but we're really in the implementation phase now. I'm on the implementation group that's overseeing that. Mm-hmm. So that's you know working out ha- how to actually get there. Uh, how to m- make the policy work. Um, and on climate change, I, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because on the face of it, you'd say that Labor is more conservative than the Greens, and having a Green climate change minister would drive harder and faster. But on the other hand, the Prime Minister has said that she wants to drive faster on climate change, and it's very much emblematic of her sort of progressive, you know, brand of politics to do that. So I'm feeling pretty optimistic whatever that outcome might be, you know, uh, and, and whoever might be, you know, it could be James, could be um, Egan Woods, could mm. be David mm. Parker, I mean, who knows. Mm. Is the um, pressure that they're under to be the mainstream uh, government, uh, given that so many uh, probably National Party voters, but, you know, they really do represent kind of the mainstream of New Zealand. Will they be under pressure to slow down change, or do you think that this gives them a mandate to speed up? You mean, you mean climate change-related change? Yes, yeah. I, I, I think they've got a mandate to speed up. I mean, they were perfectly clear about uh, their intention to uh, decarbonise the economy, uh, and, and they've got the big end of town you know, um, Westpac, IAG, um, uh, you know, even some of the petrol, you know, mm. fuel companies. Um, in particular, yeah. Yeah. Under yeah, Mike the, Bennett's. Yeah. Mm. That, I, I mean, you know, this is this is something that's that's happening. And I think, I think in a way, um, you know, I feel positive about it. The, the difficult bit is getting, as we said earlier, the agricultural part of the mix sorted. Mm. I think we'll see... Uh, however the government is formed, I think we'll see rapid deployment of EVs um, and and, uh, conversion of the public transport fleet, probably more electrification of rail. We'll probably see electric light rail. We'll see, you know, that that leap towards the last um, um, 15% or so towards 100% renewables, Mm. uh, notwithstanding the arguments around that. Uh, we might even see uh, Lake Onslow, you know, come on board, mm-hmm. stored hydro, mm-hmm. um, and and so I'm I'm feeling, you know, I mean, I think it's just incredibly exciting. We're going we're going to see more 
I think, positive and progressive reform and change over the next three years than any other period uh, in in my lifetime, at least. Oh, that's great. What is your so that's what we think is on the agenda. What what's on your wish list? You know, if you if you <coughs> think about the work you've done in recent yeah. times, particularly, I, I know I'll just pick an issue like oceans and, yeah. and water. Well, we um, uh, <coughs> we're preparing a briefing to incoming ministers, like the government agencies do. Very good. Working on that at the moment. The BIMs, they the call BIM, them. The BIM, yep. yep. And, and so our BIM is going to basically say, with respect to fresh water, you've, you've done the policy, don't retreat from it, implement it, maybe set up a fresh water commission as an independent oversight entity to hold regional councils to account because potentially that's the weak link. Yes, I keep hearing that, that um, no matter how much you... Well, that's yeah. a discussion for another show. Well, Carry on with your wish list. Well, and, and, and I think with respect to oceans, we're doing a, a big two-year project on oceans reform, and, and that's the sort of the last uh, frontier in many respects of, you know, sort of uh, primitive in, uh, legislative and administrative arrangements that need modernising. And, and so we're working on that. Uh, we want to get uh, the government to start moving on it, and, and particularly the idea of marine spatial planning, mm. I think, is mm. a useful tool. Mm. We need to get the marine... So that doesn't exist at the moment? No, no, not... No, it doesn't, no except potentially or embryonically in the Haraki Gulf, the sea change. Yeah, well, we had a, um, it was called a marine park or something, wasn't it, and, and hasn't made a blind bit of difference. Um, the, 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 there is a Haraki Gulf uh, Marine Park Act, or that's its proper name. Yeah, we've mm. done a case study looking at whether that's worked as well. That'll be published soon. But I think oceans is, is you know, marine protected areas, is is legislation is long overdue. We've got a 1971 Act. Um, conservation law reform, I think, is needed. You know, some of the legislation relating to uh, the the Land Act and and conservation. Well, well, the Land Act goes back to 1948. For goodness sake, it's still in the statute books. Mm. Uh, the, the Conservation Act, the National Parks Act, the Wildlife Act. The Wildlife Act is 53. You know, these the, the whole range of, of conservation law laws need revising and reforming. So that'll be on our wish list. Um, climate change, we discussed that. You know, let's uh, move move faster, or at least move faster to work out what our plan is to get there. We don't have to do everything all at once. Mm. We just need to be on a trajectory with the budgets from the Climate Commission uh, Help, helping guide us that gets us there on sort of the least cost pathway to net zero by 2050 and the 2030 target. Um, and and I think in respect of energy, you know, let's bang on with renewables and, and electrifying the transport fleet. Mm. Uh, let's uh, get uh, more fuel efficient cars into New Zealand by... Uh, you know, resetting the, the regulatory limits, uh, maybe incentives. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, and, and box on with um, uh, predator-free 2050, you know. Let's see if we can find an alternative to 1080, but meantime use it and mm. use it more widely. Uh, you know, Mackenzie country, wilding pines, I mean... 
the know, list goes on. The list on. goes on, doesn't <laughs> it? And we're working on all of it. And it's, uh, you know, I've got this fantastic team at EDS of these really bright people who um, who's specialising in these niches. And it's just terrific the way that we're able to generate these think pieces and have government pretty well, you know, pick them up or mm. pick substantial bits right, of them up. It's such a, an effective um, organisation uh, in that you are invited to to help contribute to right things. So it's not just a protest. But I'm interested in you personally. Um, uh <laughs> <laughs> um, You know, the fighting the good fight is tiring and uh, at some point you'd probably like to put your feet up or or maybe not. So what does the next no, five to ten years hold yeah, for you? May, maybe not. I mean, what would I do? I, I mean, I think this whole idea of uh, ageing is, uh, is, is a myth. I mean, you, 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 are, you are who you are at whatever age. Mm. I, I know a lot of young people who are elderly in their disposition, you know, <laughs> very buttoned down and, and, and not enjoying themselves particularly well. And a lot of people in my age group that are, are still uh, full of beans and carrying on. I'm going to sound like Trump in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. But um, still, lots of energy for the task. And well, um, it's the interest. It's the it, it's the it's the the uh, adrenalising of the system by the by the interest, by the challenge, and and working with you know the aforementioned uh, bright and able people and and uh, and also thinking about you know not so much personal legacy but thinking about future generations mm. and mm. and you know we 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 got raided by uh, extinction rebellion at our last climate change conference and and my initial reaction was oh, goodness you know get out of here we're doing uh, we're doing what we're doing we're actually we doing god's do work here yeah and and so we sat down and had a chat and 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 um yeah, so I think next time we'll invite them in. That's great. And you still live in the Waitakere's? Yeah, yeah, still live in the Waitakere range. Exactly. Uh, well, Gary, it's been lovely talking to you. I'm sure we'll talk again. Um, and good luck with the um, uh, you know submissions um, that are coming up and the conference on November ten and eleven. Is it a ten and eleven or eleven and twelve? I think I don't think you should trust me with numbers. Okay, it's yeah. round about then. <laughs> <laughs> if people want to come to the conference, uh, what should they Google? They should they should uh, just go to our website, climateandbusiness.com. Excellent, or EDS. I'm sure they'll find the link. Yep. Yeah. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this climate business. I hope you enjoyed the program. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.